0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The other morning, um, one of the questions when Guy was was answering, was being the answer man for the morning, uh, was about, Consciousness and um, is it part of the aggregates or is there a consciousness outside of the aggregates? And it was just delicious hearing his response. Uh, and uh, and so I I'm going to talk just a little bit the first part of this talk uh, addressing addressing that and its implications for for practice. Um, The uh, the question about consciousness as an aggregate, or is there an awareness that's that's possible? That's an all-pervading awareness that is without objects. Um, really, points to the uh, the question of uh, does a mind that's liberated uh, in a mind that's liberated is there cessation of consciousness, or is there a cessation of clinging to the aggregates, and is there an ever-present awareness? And as Joseph Goldstein wrote in uh, his beautiful book, One Dharma, he came up with the ultimate answer, who knows? And as he so beautifully lays out, there are differing schools um, surrounding this question that also affect how we practice, because in the school where there is a cessation of consciousness that follows what's called the progress of insight, in a linear kind of way, when we work hard, develop our mindfulness, have a, a, an energetic concentration, then at some point we can um, experience what is beyond consciousness, the cessation of consciousness. And we transcend normal waking consciousness into this experience of awakening, enlightenment. Now the other Approach where the awareness is here in every moment that there is an imminence to this awakened perspective means that rather than working hard, that There is a kind of letting go and relaxing, a non-doing completely. And then what what shines through is this emptiness, awareness, wakefulness, that's been here all along. And this uh, often is how it's presented in uh, Tibetan teachings and, uh, and Zen teachings, Mahayana teachings, but it's also in, in the Theravadin teachings, as, as Guy mentioned. I'll just read to you uh, a couple of lines, uh, particularly in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, this is Ajahn Mahabhua describing this true mind as simple awareness, utterly pure. This awareness has no center or reference point of self, cannot be located in any particular spot. It is unsupported, unconditioned, unconstructed. And Tanisaro Bhikkhu, contemporary American uh, Theravadan monk and scholar and teacher, he writes, a few texts discuss a separate type of consciousness that does not partake of any of the six senses or their objects, said to lie beyond the range of describable experience, and so is not included under the five aggregates. It is equivalent to the unfabricated, or nibbana, and forms the goal at the end of the path. Okay. So this might sound like it's, you know, arguing or splitting hairs or trying to find out how many uh, angels are on the head of a pin. But really, it, it does, it can affect one's understanding of practice, because in the in the school of the Progress of Insight, where there is the development of concentration and, and energy, that, that means that you are, um, you're practicing very, very diligently, and you see the Sai Dao, and, uh, and you might ask, did you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath, or things like that. This is sometimes what they ask, and it's so powerful to, to give your whole heart to practice like that. Uh, and I, and I know the, um, for myself the power of practicing in that way as they say, um, practice like your hair is on fire is one of the, the axioms. And the Buddha talks also about, this precious opportunity that we have to not waste a moment, to keep on reflecting on the preciousness of the human birth, that we're not here forever to make each moment count, because it's such a rare opportunity. On the other hand, there is this just resting in the great natural peace that says nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. and. Uh, as it, I think Howie read a little piece of this uh, from Gendin Rinpoche, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing, and all will vanish and reappear without end. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable." Sounds good. Um, This, by the way, is the uh, high teachings in Vajrayana, which they tell you after you've done 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 mantra recitations and visualizations. And you're working really hard before they say, just relax and let go. They're both true, as is usually the case. And there is um, an understanding of of the practice, whether it's called a path of practice or a waking up in this moment of practice, that there is both an awakening that's here available in every moment, and there is a path of purification and cultivation as well. One Zen master uh, called this sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. Even if you have a deep experience of the unconditioned, that's just the beginning. It's not the end, and sometimes people can mistake that as being, oh, I've got it, nothing more to do, until they forget, what was it that I got? You know, Oh, yeah, let me get it again. Well, there is this gradual cultivation that deepens and purifies that understanding so that we more and more live from that place without forgetting it. And in the Tibetan practices, they talk about once you've seen the view, then you stabilize the view, then you uh, the the view becomes uh, comes into fruition, and this takes real dedication and work. So I say this all uh, as a as a preface to what I want to talk about. What I really want to talk about tonight, which is the the process of purification and cultivation that we are all undertaking as we practice here together, and and uh, an image that I found helpful, I mentioned to uh, to somebody here in the interview just the other day, is. Um, Is that uh, that Joseph Goldstein uh, gives of um, finding your center being like um, having a ball placed on a hill. This is at the beginning of practice. You put it on that right in the center, and very very carefully hope that nothing blows it off, and it might be there for a few moments, and then it just slips down but you know that it's possible to stay in that center as you continue practicing that hill seems to level off and the ways that we get thrown off are, um, are smoothed out and if the image of a flat plane is, uh, is substituted then you put that ball on the center and it stays there much easier than on that that steep hill although if a wind comes or something shakes and it's easy for for the ball to move off center as you further deepen your practice that ground becomes a valley and the ball is spending naturally, more and more of its time in the center, it might get blown off, but it knows it comes back all on its own. And I, I like that image because I think it it very beautifully uh, describes this path of purification, that over time we might get blown off, we might lose ourselves, but we don't get lost for quite as long. Have you noticed? It's like there's a place that you can return to, that you know more and more. Perhaps you're seeing that clearly here on the retreat, but even more in your life over time, there's just a place that you know. It's like there's a little signal in the mind as you get lost or struggling. Wait, there's another way. Oh yeah, the Dharma. Oh, this breath, in and out, and here I am again. And you might get lost for... An hour or a day or whatever, but it's not like, you know, for months at a time. You might feel like you're in a, in a, in a cycle of, of confusion, but there's a place, as the practice is more and more rooted in you, that you know where home is, and you can return to it. So, this process of purification, it happened even before you started your first retreat, interestingly enough. In the, in the texts, there is the, um, the understanding that there are f- certain forces at work, forces of purity and purification that allow us to, to practice, hear the Dharma and wake up and these are called paramis, or forces of purity. It's the same root word as paramitas. Um, And the, the two main forces of purity are purity of conduct and purity of wisdom. The Buddha said, as we become more aligned with our own, with our integrity, with what matters, as we are expressing uh, a more ethical and virtuous life then we come into alignment not only within ourselves but circumstances start to unfold that allow us to to hear the wisdom around us this is what ramdas says in uh, in be here now one of my favorite he says, the next message you hear will be the next message you hear. The messages are happening all, all the time, but often we can't hear them because we're too scattered and confused. But as, you, as your forces, as your paramis of conduct, purity of conduct, which come from integrity and also a, a heart of generosity, allows for good, good circumstances, and allows us to hear the Dharma. It is said that those, those forces are what mysteriously, magically open us up to be able to hear the Dharma, be in circumstances where the Dharma is being heard. And when I say the Dharma, again, I don't only mean uh, Theravadan Buddhism, although it's extraordinary karma that we are all here, together, hearing and sharing the dharma. Then there is the purity of wisdom, which enables us not only to hear the dharma, but motivates us to practice the dharma. This, I just want to say a word about the first part, This. Uh, the paramis of conduct, purity of conduct, that it brings us to the circumstances of hearing, hearing the Dharma, but also as we practice, as you've probably seen, more and more you start to align yourself, have that deeper, deeper understanding that this is where happiness lies, to live with integrity. And I remember on my first... Um, three-month course. At the end of the the course, and I I tried to kind of figure out what I would tell people happened. That might be a thought that occurs to you as you're maybe either ending up uh, 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 coming to the end of a a month of practice or coming just be in the middle of two months. What do you say to people? And I warn you, you can only say so much without either eyes glazing over or, you know, just kind of uh, confusion. So it's best to have a, a sound bite that kind of encapsulates it without getting too much into the details. But on that first retreat, what it really came down to, I said, okay, what did I learn in this one? And what I, what I learned came down to the fact that it's not worth the ripples in my mind to cause more confusion or suffering for myself or others. Now, coming to that understanding, really having it so clear, does not necessarily mean, oh, then that's it, I'll never do that again. There is a continual process of remembering after you've forgotten, oh yeah, that is important to me, okay, let's get back and and remember what I know. So that understanding, again, has its own purification process. But as you start to see that, not just as something that you read in a book, but something that you know for yourself, oh, I want to be in alignment with my values, that continues that process of facing in the right direction. I want to share with you, actually, uh, just a... A little passage from somebody, um, from a young person who uh, did their first retreat, and uh, they put it so um, clearly and uh, and profoundly, this person saying, I have come to understand the real secret to long-term happiness. Here it is. He was writing it to himself. I'll just read a little. The real secret of long-term happiness is knowing that one's actions are in impeccable alignment with the truth. When there is an ingrained knowing that you're doing your absolute humanly possible best to be generous and compassionate and trying your hardest not to cause harm to any other being, that is it, underlined like three times. There is nothing that you can possibly blame yourself for and nothing anyone else can blame you for. When you arrive at this, an inconceivable, incalculable weight is lifted from your shoulders. There's nothing left to hold on to. In essence, you become frictionless with the cycle of suffering." That's how that person put it, and just coming from, from their own heart, not any anything that they'd read about or just it just comes so something has brought you to to here and then you start on this continue on this process of purification and there's uh, I'm going to give you some of the the elements that to me, seem like they are common threads. You won't find this in any, in the poly canon or in any particular list. Although pieces will, are in some lists, but um, it just seems to me, and I'll, I'll share with uh, a few of my own um, understandings of this and experiences with this, and hope you can relate to your own experience. Um, We come often to practice because of our own suffering. And then when we see a possibility of a way, a possible way out of suffering, we can be very, very highly motivated. When we hear the Dharma, or we are moved and inspired by something we read, or a friend somehow embodies something. It awakens our faith. Remember, I talked about that in, uh, in the first talk I, I shared. Somewhere in you, you believe in the possibility that peace is possible. But that means being willing. To open up to everything inside because you can't bypass all of the places that frighten us that we want to uh, distract ourselves from here we are sitting and saying okay let me look at everything this takes tremendous courage so with faith that might lead to um, aligning ourselves and trusting that peace is possible, we have to find some capacity to open up to our demons. And as probably many of you have experienced, fear comes as you do this practice. Because if, if you if you weren't willing to open up to the places that scared you, as Pema Chodron says, then you'd still be in a kind of um, spiritual bypass. So to have the courage to open up to your demons, this is not only it's essential and to know that fear is really okay. when you're Getting into that place of coming outside of your comfort zone. This is a good sign. Jack Cornfield has a good way of, of putting it. He says, fear is really saying about to grow. You know? <laughs> and it's a kind of scout between your familiar place, the, the known, and the unknown. When you touch that place of fear, or that place of uh, abject terror. Don't think you're doing something wrong. You are getting right to the heart of of the, the richness of practice that anybody who's going to completely devote themselves to awaken will touch. If you, you're familiar with the hero's journey, you know Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, whether it's the Buddha or Jesus or any great hero story, at some point after going on their quest, the hero or heroine meets their demon or monster, that place of great doubt or fear. The contemporary image that I find very um, helpful and uh, that that almost anybody can connect to is in the Star Wars movie movies, particularly uh, the, in The Empire Strikes Back, when Yoda is teaching Luke Skywalker to be a, a Jedi master. And Luke is very uh, impatient, and he wants to get on with it, and he teaches, uh, Yoda teaches him what, what he can, but at some point he feels, okay, if Luke is, is really going for it, let's give it to him. This is what he's got to see. And if you recall, if you saw the movie, he goes in with a lightsaber, and, and Yoda says, go in that cave, and you will face your demons. And it scares the living daylights out of Luke, but he comes out. a new Jedi Master. You can't go around that. You have to be willing to face your demons in order to um, to really find the strength that you didn't even know was inside of you. That's That's what happens when you're willing, when you have the courage to face your demons. You just dig down and find a place that you didn't know was available to you. And it gives you deeper and deeper confidence that you touch something that is beyond your thinking mind. Oh, I have this capacity to be with it. So fear is okay, and it's important. It's essential. And for my own self, my really deepest, um, my turning point in my life was when I came face to face with my most terrifying moments, and I I won't get into it now, but other than to say I thought I was going crazy, and I thought I was in in a hell realm, and there was no way out, and from that that losing all, anything to hold on to, somehow coming through the other side, I realized that I could face that demon again, and come out alive. And it turned me around, actually this is even before I got into practice. It turned me around from being somebody who thought that life would never work, to seeing the possibilities and the goodness in life. So, if you touch your own your own fears and terrors. This is a good thing. It's partly learning to become more and more at home and friends, make friends with, with the fears. And as you get a taste of that possibility, there's a yearning, a real yearning for freedom. You have a faith in the possibility, you have the courage to be with things as they come up. And then there's a yearning for freedom. And this is a very also key component. How much do you want to be free? This is uh, from Punjaji, one of my most inspiring teachers, who says, um, just give rise to the single thought, I want to be free. This thought will rarely come out of the entire population. I call this thought of freedom going against the stream and towards the source. This desire for freedom is the most intense desire. Once you really feel it, all other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall. The desire for freedom is intense and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you back home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. Have you gotten a sense of the fact, I really want to be free? Now you can say that from a place of, oh God, I really want to be free. Oh, this is so awful. Which is understandable. I know that feeling well. Oh God, get me out of this. But when it becomes transformed into a very sincere cry for freedom. I want to be free, and I will do whatever it takes. This is a a tremendous surge of inspiration for the Dharma. And this is uh, Nisargadatta from um, I Am That. He says, your sincerity will guide you. Devotion to the goal of freedom and perfection will make you abandon all theories and systems and live by wisdom, intelligence, and active love. Whatever na- name you give it, will or steady purpose or one-pointedness of mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you are in dead earnest, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose commitment to your purpose, that cry for freedom, as you face in that direction, face in the right direction, then with that hearing of that deep call, then all the times you get confused or lost are held in that higher purpose, that higher commitment, what I think I mentioned briefly before, is called the clear comprehension of purpose, our deep motivation for practice, that yearning. Uh, and I'll, I'll share a, sor- a story that some of you have heard before when I got in, in touch with this in my own practice a, a number of years ago. Um, when I was, um, I was on my way to, uh, to Asia, uh, to a, a conference in in uh, in India in Dharamsala. and uh, my plane was scheduled to stop in Frankfurt. Um, that's just the way the the route was. And when I told a, a friend that I was um, stopping in Frankfurt, she said, "Oh, you you should visit Mother Mira. And I said, "Oh, okay." She Sounds good. She said, oh, no, you, you really, you have to visit Mother Mira. I said, all right, okay. She said, oh, and Mother Mira uh, grants you, by the way, a boon of whatever it is that you really want. She can give that to you. I said, okay, I'll go visit Mother Mira. <laughs> all right. So I arranged to, this, this holy woman, uh, Indian uh, saint, uh, and I arranged to have a few nights in, visiting Mother Mira and, uh, outside of Frankfurt. Um, traveled to her where her ashram is. And uh, I went to the scene, and there in the scene, there were about 150 people at the time. I, I have no idea how, how big it is now. This is in 94. And, uh, and I kind of checked the scene out, and uh, what happens is you go up one by one in front of Mother Mira, and uh, you, you have a, a few seconds to interact with her. kind of checked it out. You have about 45 seconds to sit with her. And it's almost like two or three seconds, you know, variant at the most, she just knows. And you, you kind of wait your turn. There's a, an on-deck circle. And, <laughs> and when you're ready, you go up when somebody else leaves the spot. And then you move to sitting in front of her. And you're sitting in there in front of her and you're looking Oh first you um, first you put your head down and she kind of does some spiritual massage on your neck that who knows what one friend called it untying karmic knots uh, I have no idea but she does something and then she lets go and then you look up and you look into each other's eyes and um, and after a while gazing into eternity uh, she just closes her eyes and that's the signal. That's the end of the darshan. Okay, so there I was <clears throat> and thinking, okay, well, she'll grant me whatever I want. What do I really want? That was the question. What do I want? And I didn't want to go up first or even second. I just took my time. What do I really want? What is it that I want? And I thought, and I thought, do I want another experience? No. Do I want anything? No. They all come and go, what do I really, really want? And as I got in touch with it over the the next hour, by the time I got up to her, I got clear what I really wanted. And whether or not it's her powers or what, just getting that clear in that heightened awareness state and being witnessed by somebody who you surrender to and trust imprinted that clear comprehension of purpose in my heart. And it's something that I, I say to myself um, every day before I give a talk before I work with with somebody. Just planting that seed and that intention keeps that alive. Now, I ask you, if you were in my situation and you were in front of somebody like Mother Mira or some wise being who could grant you what you really wanted, what would it be? like you to just close your eyes for a moment if you're not already and just imagine in this situation what is it that you really want what is your highest highest inspiration and intention If you get clear on it, then it can be granted. If not, then you just take your chances. What is it that you really want? And let yourself feel it from that place of authenticity inside. Got it? That's it. Okay. That is your clear comprehension of purpose, which might change. It might change over time. We might be inspired by, by other things over time, but it is the, your own source of fulfillment in practice. Then as you have that commitment that comes out of that deep yearning, and that clear comprehension of purpose, you practice, and amazingly, the practice works. I was saying this to my uh, my Berkeley group uh, just the other night. Uh, I, on Thursday nights, I go back and give a talk to my 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 group, and and each week this uh, this month, I come back and bring a little bit of the retreat with me, and just saying how I'm never. It never ceases to amaze me how this practice works. How just lifting your foot and knowing you're lifting it, breathing and knowing that you're taking an in breath, and one moment of mindfulness after another, you start to develop wisdom, where the wisdom shines through, and the heart starts to open, and the clarity is is little by little uh, being awakened. It works. It really does work, and what you particularly are starting to see, I would imagine, are those characteristics that things don't last. Have you noticed that? I hope so. Anybody not noticed that things things change? That holding on to what is changing is not going to bring happiness, is an unreliable source of happiness. An impossible source of happiness, lasting happiness, and that you yourself are this changing experience, and you get a glimpse of this understanding of uh, the selfless nature of experience. When you see that you're not your thoughts, can you control your thoughts? No. Can you control your bodily sensations? Oh, if only. (laughs) It's just doing its own lawful unfolding, and in that, there's no controlling experience, and you begin to let go just a little bit. And you see that, you know, it's not about arriving someplace, it's about being here for the ride, the roller coaster of ups and downs. And if you can learn to just enjoy the ride, instead of trying to get to any destination, then every moment counts. From time to time, you might have strong glimpses of the selfless nature of experience. I remember on one retreat where um, I had been sitting for some time. It was a a fall course at IMS. And I just got into this, this place where it was just all happening for a period of time and I was sitting for, for longer periods at a time and I was, I was pretty present and, and had lots of energy. It was, it was right. It was really amazing. And I had this one, one sit where I had been sitting for, for a while and uh, I decided to sit sometimes with my eyes open just to, to stay grounded. And in from the, uh, into the hall, came this yogi who I have tremendous respect for, their their um, diligence, and I could just feel her sincerity of practice. She comes down, sits not far from me, and after a few moments, maybe 10, 15 minutes, she's having a classic case of the nods, where she's just kind of going mm, up, down and up. Mm, you know. <laughs> And it really struck me how interesting. How is this, here I am, sitting with all of this energy and and just kind of cruising, and she comes in, this yogi who I have such deep respect for, and just, you know, is nodding out. And I thought of all the countless hours that I have spent nodding out, just mm, probably weeks if you put it all together. <laughs> yeah. And in one moment, it just it occurred to me it could easily be me tomorrow, right? In that place, we could switch places. And in a moment, the whole the whole room kind of spun around and did this thing where it wasn't me and and these other people, it was just these energies. And here was, here was alertness and, and concentration, and here was sleepiness, and here was peace, and here was love, and here was confusion, and here was... And the thought of taking credit for my own experience it became completely absurd. I didn't know how I got to where I was. I didn't know. If I knew, I'd be doing it a lot. You know, <laughs> I had no idea. It just happened. And the th- it, it was a, a very uh, important shift for me because it became so clear that the thought of taking credit for the good stuff or taking blame, blaming ourselves for the yucky stuff, is just completely missing the point. All we need to do is just show up, do the best we can, and sometimes we're clear, sometimes we're calm, sometimes we're chaotic, sometimes we're sleepy. It just does its thing. And in that you see the selfless nature of the process. That's where, if you can let go of the report card of trying to figure out how you're doing, not only will you save yourself some grief, but you're really seeing, having a genuine understanding of the selfless nature of the experience. So this commitment to practice, and then you see the truth. You see that you aren't who you thought you are. And then another aspect along with seeing through the selfless nature on the more relative level that I think is a key component in people's process is even on that relative level seeing us as a separate self, even though we don't, we might understand that's not the full picture we somehow need to learn to cherish and love this being as its own unique expression of life, that until you do, you are looking for happiness and validation and completion outside of yourself. And it's humbling, it's really humbling to see all the ways that we might not like ourselves or all the places that we you know we wish were were finished and it's it's very humbling but actually the more you wake up it's part of the process that the more humbled you are and it's not bad news this is really good news if you can take it as part of a process of learning to appreciate and humble yourself I want to read to you a, a, a section of, um, uh, from Be Here Now that uh, was very um, meaningful for me. This is from a, a, a beautiful piece called The Course of Sadhana, The Course of Practice. And uh, he says, ramdas says, As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion, It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates of the temples get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple, but the light is brighter too. It all becomes more intense because of the additional energy involved at each stage of practice. What is happening to you is nothing less than death and rebirth. What is dying is the entire way in which you understood who you are and how it all is. What is being reborn is the child of the spirit for whom all things are new. This process of attending an ego that is dying at the same time as you're going through a birth process is awesome. Be gentle and honor that which is dying as well as that which is being born. Which means you have to really... Honor and love your own unique expression of humanity. And even though I had been practicing for quite uh, quite a number of years, a major shift for me was truly getting getting that that I am lovable, not just in here, but actually experiencing it. Mm-hmm. When I shared with you in one of the other talks, I think it was the Judging Mind. I asked you to see yourself through somebody's eyes. Remember that? That that for me was was the doorway. That that's what happened. Somehow that came to me. You know, I was trying to do meta for myself. Yeah, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? Okay, right. All right. May I? You uh, know, may I be uh, have ease of well-being? Yeah, sure. Right. Okay. And I kind of, you know, I, I, I do appreciate myself, but for one moment I saw myself through somebody else's eyes and I just got it in a whole different way. Oh, wow, you're really a good guy, okay. And I hope that you get that and see how important it is to more and more open up to that truth, that reality, that you are a perfect expression of life. And if you don't include yourself in that loving kindness, you're doing a disservice to everybody because then we don't get a chance to have your full beauty shine through. That expression, I love Ajahn Sumedho's expression, the shining through of the divine, he calls it. I remember in one interview in... Uh, in, in uh, doing intensive practice, I came in and I had been teaching for for some time. And I went into Joseph and I was taking a look at my mind and I said, I have no business telling anybody anything about how to live their life. You know, I just see it all too plainly, all of this yuck in here. right? And uh, he said, oh yeah, I know what that's like. I get that, I've gotten that feeling. I said, yeah, you do? You did? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. But, then there's another place. (laughs) Every time he does a long practice retreat, at least this was a number of years ago, he might be over that by now, but but those thoughts, they still might come, you know, oh my goodness, who do you think you are? But then as he said to me, but you know what? Life is saying, this is what you should be doing. And so you just have to honor that and not believe those thoughts. They're just habits. They're just old thoughts and patterns of mind. And the more we can even start by acting as if we're lovable, then we can uh, wake up to the place that we really are lovable. We are love. As I said in that other talk, how can you say my unconditional love isn't as good as your unconditional love? Yeah. But it, it will. It takes some humility to see all of those places and not believe those thoughts. It also takes, besides that development of loving kindness for ourselves, great patience because this, all of these patterns won't disappear in one day or one retreat. And so it's a process of just waking up little by little. And I I, I share this passage that I love that um, I'm sure a number of you have heard that describes so beautifully this learning process. This is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. She says, Chapter 1 I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. (laughs) I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. (laughs) It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. (laughs) And we are spending more and more time in that chapter 3 where she says, my eyes are open. I'm being, I'm being mindful. I see. I know where I am. And when she says, it is my fault, not with blame, but just to see, oh, I have a choice to cause myself suffering or to cause happiness. I can choose. And then when you see you can choose, you start to walk around it or walk down another street. This takes tremendous patience and refuge in the Dharma, in knowing that if you're facing in the right direction, you just take the next step right where you are and have that vision, inspiring vision, to keep you going. Another component of this process of purification that I'm sure all of us can agree on, is the importance of good friends. It's so easy to forget, as Ananda was told by the Buddha when he said, it seems that having good friends is half the holy life. And the Buddha saying, not so, Ananda. Having good friends is the whole of the holy life. This is something we can't do without because we need to be reminded and we remind each other. So we have this refuge in the Sangha and I'm sure you can feel the support as you go through these days when you just might have the idea, oh, I don't know if I feel like, and there you see somebody just diligently doing their practice, inspiring you. Okay, I can do it. We're all doing this together. And it's the same outside in your your life as it is here. And there's many different ways to find that like-minded friendship, whether If you're not around other places, other people, then reading good books or having tapes or having some ways to remind yourself. But if you're fortunate enough to be right with others, with other people, this is a a great essential boon to, to practice, support your practice. And then finally, as part of this process of purification, as you keep on facing in the right direction and keep on developing yourself and developing a loving attitude towards yourself as well as seeing the selfless nature of who you are, then your practice becomes a gift that you give to others. One of the, the highest motivations for practice. You're not practicing just for yourself. As you embody more kindness and clarity, then that is what we all have. And we need your goodness to shine through. This is the bodhisattva ideal in practicing where you're awakening that seed of, of of enlightenment and you're practicing with that altruistic attitude i don't know if i read it before from uh, neoshio kempo but i'm going to i'm going to read this passage again sally said even if you did a good passage is always worth hearing again <laughs> we are not practicing for ourselves alone everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations with this perfectly pure motivation, this innate bodhicitta. We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma such as Dzogchen and other teachings, but without this goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationalization. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So that's the full flowering of this purification process. And it, it keeps on purifying more and more and more. So even if you have that as your motivation, it's not like, oh, I've gotten to the end and, and that's it. There's an ongoing development. Every moment of mindfulness, which I've said a few times before, every single moment of mindfulness, you're deconditioning those habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, and you're further purifying your heart, so that you live more and more from that place. You embody it, and then that bodhicitta, Buddha nature, shines through. So, your motivation, suffering leading to faith, and the possibility, aligning yourself with your highest values, being courageous to face your demons and fears, Feeling that deep yearning and commitment to practice. Seeing through that sense of self. Developing loving kindness for yourself. Having great humility and patience as you do this practice. And having the support of good friends as you practice for the benefit of not only yourself, but all beings. This is the process, as I see it, of purification. And it's here in this moment, and it's an ongoing process of development. Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. I'll close with this poem that I, I read one evening at uh, one of the uh, uh, the late-night sittings uh, called Awakening Now that I think really sums this up by Dana Falls. Why wait for your awakening, she says, The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep. And my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 21, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. O- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.